like you to come with me uh, back in history 150 years, about 150 years to England. And uh, we're standing outside a little house and we look through the window and there's a man lying in the bed and I whisper to you, that's Hudson Taylor. He was serving in China for seven years, but he's been having health problems and has come back. And then we fast forward five years later and I say, did you hear what Hudson said the other day? He's on his way back to China and he's taking other people with him. As he's been recuperating, he has this sense that the millions of people in China, particularly in the inland areas, not on the coast, uh, the millions of people there need the gospel and he wants to go back himself. You want to go along? If you do, Hudson would have said, you're going to have to raise your own support. So don't expect some mission agency to pay for you going there. You'll have to trust the Lord. And Hudson Taylor practiced what he preached. One time he sent a message to a friend and he said, I only have 87 cents. But I have all the promises of God. And the Lord took care of him helped him mobilize literally hundreds of people to go to China and serve as part of the China Inland Mission, and he was there himself for some 51 years. What is it that kept him going? He tells us. He says, hope kept me going. And isn't that something that you need? Hope? Yeah, Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound with hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the verses from which we just read. 2 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 24, down through chapter 18, verse 18. And the focus there is not so much on hope. It's a kind of a funny thing that we even think about hope. The focus of these verses is on crime and punishment. But you'll see how hope fits in, I think, by the time we're done. 2 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 24, down through chapter 18, verse 18. And here's how we're going to approach it. We're going to look at a problem that's there. It's a very simple outline. Problem, then the solution, and then the takeaway for the week that's ahead for you. What's the problem? It's crunch time for the nation of Israel. Absalom, David's second son, is an insurrectionist, and he is intent on putting down his father, king of the land. He's mounted his army and chased David, who has just crossed the Jordan River, with his army, and they are about to engage in mortal conflict. Last week, we looked at what we might call competing counselors. In this section, we're looking at competing armies. And so... We come then to this section that we just read, and we're told David came to Mahaniam, Absalom crossed the Jordan, 
And then there's kind of an expansion in verses 27 to 29 that's very important for under understanding of this passage. What happens? Well, three men seemingly come out of the woodwork. They're named Shobi and um, Barzillai, and who's the other one? Makir. You know them. They come with help for David and his army. They bring foodstuffs. They bring bedding. They bring all that he needs. Now let's just pause here and ask ourselves the question, why is this crunch time? Why is this an important part of Israel's history? If Absalom is successful in his conquest, what will happen to God's promise to David? Remember? Chapter 7, he said, I'm going, you don't have to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. You are never going to lack somebody to sit on your throne. How will somebody who's a rebel be able to sit on the throne of righteousness for the people of Israel? He won't be able to. Absalom will be the farthest thing from what God hopes for as far as his nation is concerned. And you remember, too, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. There we read that God had specially appointed David to lead the people because he was a person with a heart after God. And furthermore, if Absalom's attempt here is successful, what will become of God's promise to Abraham? Remember what he said in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. God's going to expand the gospel so that all kinds of people, even people in Berks County, Pennsylvania, 2021, will be able to hear and believe. But if Absalom is successful, it's all going down the tube. So what will ever help this situation? God's providence. God's providence is splattered all over these verses. What do we mean by God's providence? It's a very, very important biblical concept. Here's a little definition. What do we mean by God's providence? We mean his most holy and wise governing and preserving all his creatures and all their actions. Let me say it again. God's providence is his most holy and wise, governing and preserving all his creatures and all their actions. Or let me say it another way. When we think about God's providence, we're thinking about a key biblical concept that God is really God. Nothing happens by chance. He has his fingers in all the details. And he does it for his own glory and for his people's good. So we see something of God's providence right away here at the end of chapter 17. The Lord provides for David and his men through these apparently wealthy people who live on the other side of the Jordan River. What else? Well, before we go on to the what else, I just want to pause here and make a point of application. 
These people, Makir, Shobi, Barzillai, they express what we see in another place in the story of David, two other places actually. They express what we might call compassion or mercy. Where else have we seen that in this story? Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. David comes to the throne and he says, is there anybody still in Saul's family to whom I can show kindness? And yes, there is. There's Mephibosheth and he is a cripple. And David says, I want to be kind to him. Ziba, you take care of his property and uh, I'm going to make sure that he comes and eats at my table every day. And then we fast forward a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 16. And David is in need again, and here comes Ziba. And he is kind to David, providing foodstuffs very similar to what we find here in verses 25 through 27. It is the nature of people that follow the Lord to be kind and generous. They don't do, they don't do it because they have to. They do it because they want to. God has been generous to us. We want to find ways to be generous to him by serving those around us. And so we might just say on the side here, it's not the point of the passage, but who might the Lord lead you to this week? To whom could you be generous? How could you show the kindness of the Lord in the same way that these three rich guys do to David and his army? So now let's go on and see something more of God's providence here. Uh, beginning of chapter 18, David organizes his troops into three groups. And he says to them, uh, I will go out with you. And they immediately say, no way. You can't do it. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. You stay put. You'll be much more valuable here. We'll go out and do the fighting. And so David acquiesces, and in verse 5, we find him giving a final word as the troops go past him out to battle. What is the word? Deal gently with the young man. David is aware. He knows full well that this battle is going to pit his army against Absalom, the insurrectionist. And he wants his leaders to be sensitive to the way in which they treat him. Everybody hears it, verse 5 says. Now, if you look at verses 6 through 8, you'll see that David's army wins big time. No question. What are we told? First of all, in one day, 20,000 of Absalom's army are put to death. 20,000 people in one day. Not just 20,000 people in one day, though. Notice how they died. We are told the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And you think, what does that mean? Well, think about it just a little bit from this angle. David has uh, amassed an army of people that are, you might say, more uh, skilled at guerrilla warfare. Absalom, on the other hand, it appears as if his army, they are conscriptionists. Uh, they have been pressed into service. Not apparently as skilled. 
And this place where they're fighting, the forest of Ephraim, apparently was rather treacherous. And so the forest, the surroundings, take more men of the 20,000 than the fighting does. The forest is more hungry than the sword is. The Hebrew text goes like this. Forest was greater to devour among people than sword devoured. Really amazing. And, uh, you know, it's not hard for us to get in our minds the idea that natural phenomenon can be pretty deadly. Just think about all the fires out in the west part of our, western part of the United States. And so let's just make the contrast about, and, and underscore God's providence here. What is happening for David and his men? They are in this area, and there are... Um, there are supportive people there that provide for him and his men. David receives from this part of God's geography, this part of his father's world. And what happens to Absalom and his men? They're devoured. It's disaster. And it's in keeping with, God, with what God had said back in chapter 17, verse 14. He said that he was going to confuse the counsel of Ahithophel so that he could bring disaster on Absalom. How's that going to happen? Well, verse nine, verses 9 to 18 now kind of unpack it. Uh, Absalom is a big military guy. He's a proud man. He's an important man. And he rides a mule. And it says that by chance, he bumps into some of David's soldiers. And by chance, he heads off, apparently not paying attention to where he's going. And it's not long before he's stuck in an oak tree, a big oak tree. There he is, hanging between heaven and earth. Some have postulated that this is because he had big hair, you know? He would cut it once a year. We don't know that he had big hair at that point or that the hair had anything to do with him hanging in the tree. What we do know is there he is in a big oak tree. And just think about it. Here he is, between life and death, between the sentence that should naturally come to a rebel and his value as a son uh, between the severity that a king should bring to bear on someone who's an insurrectionist as over against the yearning of the father. There he is hanging between heaven and earth. He loses his mule and in the process he loses his kingdom. Again, let's just pause and think about the various players in this narrative. You know, there are a bunch of difficult names that we fumbled over earlier. But uh, the main players here are Absalom. He's the central one. This is really about him. And uh, then there's Joab, who's the dominant player here. 
And then there's David, who's really quite passive. Well, what the writer does is he gives us a snapshot view in verses 6 through 8, and then in 9 through 18, he kind of unpacks what we already know has happened, but gives us more detail. And the narrator's attempt, I think, is to really focus in on Joab, the dominant player here, and his part in what happens this fateful day. Now remember, back in verse 5, everybody has heard David say, deal gently with the young man. And somebody reports to Joab that he's seen Absalom hanging in the tree. And Absalom, and Joab is incensed. He says, what do you mean? Didn't you kill him? And then there's a little discussion. Uh, this unknown uh, man says, well, you heard the king. Joab says, I'm not having anything to do with it. He takes three javelins, goes, while Absalom is still hanging in the tree, blip, 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 he drives the javelins into him. Then apparently his body drops to the ground and Joab orchestrates things, so ten young men put him to death. We wonder, it's just one person killed in battle, right? We've seen something like this before. Remember what happened when David told Joab to put Uriah out in front and have everybody pull back so that he would die? And the report comes back, your servant Uriah is dead. And David's reply to that? Don't let this be evil in your eyes. The sword kills one as well as the other. And we wonder to ourselves, to what extent was that being replayed in the mind of Joab as he kills Absalom, David's son? So here's the picture. David murders Uriah. Absalom murders Amnon, his brother. Joab murders Absalom. Then we're given an epilogue in verse 18. Earlier in his life, Absalom had made a monument for himself, and he put it in the valley of the kings. Said, I don't have any son to remember me. Now, if you read, look at your footnote, probably you'll see that, in fact, he had three sons, but maybe all of them died in infancy. Who knows what happened to them? But he says, I don't have any sons to carry on my legacy, so at least here's a monument to me. This is crime and punishment. You oppose God's kingly rule, you're going to pay. That's what the Bible teaches. God is establishing a kingdom for himself in this world. It's sobering. So now let's sketch out what the, author, what the narrator gives us as far as Joab's behavior is concerned. First of all, 
he disobeys the king. He heard the word from David and the unknown person who saw Absalom hanging repeated it nearly verbatim. Deal gently with my son. And, Ab, and Joab does just the opposite. He takes the law into his own hands. He will decide what's right and what's wrong. He acts like the jury and the judge and the executioner. And it is time to pause, I think, here and just ask ourselves the question, where will you be on Judgment Day? The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Every person will give an account of himself before God for the things done in the body, whether they're good or bad. Joab stands before us as an antitype to Jesus, right? Does Jesus disobey his father? Not at all. He says, John 17, I have come to do everything you asked me to do. Does Jesus respond to those around him with murder? Not at all. He lays down his life for those who will believe in him. Does Jesus act like the judge? Absolutely. Absolutely. John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus tells us, the Father has given all judgment into the Son. So the Son will judge all those who come to stand before him. And so that raises the question, what do we do with this gory story? I think to get at that, it will help us to take all that we've just done, uh, all that we've developed, and now run down through history a little bit and think back on other readers reading this narrative. Uh, maybe Queen Esther. Remember, she's there with Ahasuerus, the king. She reads this about God's kingdom. And then um, maybe there's Jeremiah. You know, the Bible tells us that Jeremiah was up to his neck in mud in a pit. He reads this. And uh, maybe Malachi. And maybe uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They read this history. What do they think? What's the takeaway? God's kingdom is advancing in the world. No matter how much people try to subvert God's purposes, his kingdom is coming. And the gospel writers had the advantage that the earlier readers didn't have. They could see, because Jesus had said it, that he is the just judge. Now, in the coming of Christ, what does that mean? It means as the righteous judge, Jesus is going to set every wrong right. You don't have to worry about it. Every single wrong 
is going to be set right. He will not make a mistake in his rendering of judgment. Everybody will receive what they've done in the body, whether good or bad. God's kingdom, in other words, cannot be destroyed. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is exactly where crime and punishment and hope cross one another. Yeah, crime and punishment is here, but it points us ahead to the just judge who is going to right every wrong and usher in his eternal kingdom where the people of God will be blessed forever and ever. So how do we live in the light of this promise fulfilled in Jesus? We live in hope. We live in hope. We don't live discouraged by the events around us, but we don't simply live in hope. We live in hope serving the one who has died and risen and is our coming reigning king. We seek to advance his kingdom in this world. Does that make sense? Jesus is the antitype to Joab, who is the just judge. He is the one who will set every wrong right and who is coming to fulfill the Father's plan to bring blessing upon you. And so let's just go back over this. What did we find those folks across the Jordan doing? Serving David and his men. That's a good thing for you to keep in mind. We advance the kingdom of God as we serve those that the Lord has placed before us. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual rulers in the heavenly places. Therefore, pray, pray that the gospel may advance. Now here's one very practical. Remember when we started out on Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor said, I only got 87 cents, but I have all the promises of God. And so he spent 51 years in China. And there's, uh, there's uh, at least one guesstimate that some 25,000 Chinese people came to know the Lord as a result of his ministry. It's phenomenally successful. Well, this is what he says about the impact of hope on his life. And something is very practical for you in this next week. Try this one. He says, this blessed hope was a thoroughly practical one. It led me to look carefully through my little library to see if there were any books there that were not needed or likely to be in further, of further service and to examine my small wardrobe to be quite sure that it contained nothing I should be sorry to give an account of should the master come at once. The result was that the library was considerably diminished to the benefit of some poor neighbors and to the far greater benefit of my own soul and that I found I had articles of clothing also which might be put to better advantage 
in other directions. And he goes on and he says, it has been very helpful to me from time to time through life as occasion has served to act again in a similar way. And I have never gone through my house from basement to attic with this object in view without receiving a great accession of spiritual joy and blessing. I believe we are all in danger of accumulating. That's sort of the understatement of the year for Americans, right? He said, let me read it again. I believe we are all in danger of, accumu of accumulating. It may be from thoughtlessness or from pressure of occupation, things which would be useful to others while not needed by ourselves, and the retention of which entails loss of blessing. If the whole resources of the church of God were well utilized, how much more might be accomplished? How many poor might be fed and naked clothed, and to how many of those as yet unreached with the gospel might it be carried? Let me advise this line of things as a constant habit of mind and a profitable course to be particularly and practically adopted whenever circumstances permit. Hope led Hudson Taylor to do some house cleaning. Might that be a practical outworking for you? All right, thank you very much. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I only have 87 cents, but I have all the promises of God, and so do you too. And Jesus is our just judge, and he's our reigning king, and nothing is going to defeat his kingdom, so go home this week and clean your house. Lord, we bless your name. We love you. We thank you for what you've given us in Christ. Thank you that he, in his death and resurrection, is defeating all of his enemies and ours. Help us to live uh, with a view to the future and help us to give ourselves uh, singularly for the advance of your kingdom. We pray these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.